Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? The idea seems simple. Charge people a small amount of money to pay for parking on residential streets and use the money to help deal with the climate crisis. When I'm talking to anybody on the street, I ask them, you think about this parking? It's like, no, man. They are crazy. They have lost their minds. For hours and hours, Vancouver City Council heard from people like him, passionate over what some called their right to park on the street. Others said the plan was unfair and flawed, even if the goal was laudable. What about people with kids, they said. This mom called in to fire back. I have two elementary age kids. For the past four years, I have biked, and we got rid of our car completely two years ago. I did this because I believe that climate change is the greatest challenge facing humanity and the globe. Finally, council members had their say. At the end of the day, the very real cost will be borne by our residents in an already unaffordable city. I am a grandmother, and I'm sorry if I'm emotional about this, but every day I think about their future. A nine-month-old grandson and a three-year-old grandson, they're going to be alive in 2100. Then they voted. The parking proposal failed six to five. It's a vivid portrayal of the responsibilities and limits cities have when it comes to tackling climate change. Just how can they raise funds to fight emissions and protect the most vulnerable from heat domes, dirty air, and rising waters? To answer that, we start in Vancouver, end with a nod to the upcoming climate talks in Glasgow, and hear about innovative cities along the way. Frances Bulow watched the hours-long meeting at Vancouver City Hall several days ago. She's a freelance journalist who covers urban issues and politics, primarily for the Globe and Mail. Hello. Hi. Walk us through the climate emergency parking program. What was the goal? Well, the goal here was that this was going to be one of the key, 10 key game-changer recommendations out of about 50 in the city's Climate Emergency Action Plan. And it had a couple of goals. One was to remind people that the pavement is not free. Number two, to put a pollution charge on high polluting vehicles, you know, giant SUVs and the like, of up to $1,000. So trying to discourage people from buying those kinds of vehicles and maybe instead getting a lower gas emissions uh, car or something electric. And number three was to raise money for the rest of the Climate Emergency Action Plan. And they were talking about up to $72 million in four years. Now, as you mentioned, there was a range of prices for different people. Um, there was even a low income cost, wasn't there, for people who didn't have a lot of money? That's right. Yeah. After some consultation with the public who said, you know, even $45 could be a lot for, you know, a minimum wage service worker, it was decided that there'd be a $5 a year fee for people who qualified by income. And a lot of people came to speak to council about it, hours and hours worth of people. What stood out to you from what you heard? 
uh, aside from the fact that I was there from nine in the morning till six at night, um, <laughs> I mean, people were very passionate on both sides. There's something about parking and car storage on streets that really gets people going in a particular way. And, you know, so obviously there were people who were just, this is my right to be able to park on the street in front of my house. I pay taxes. I pay a lot of taxes. I can't believe the city would even think about charging me for this. And then others on the other side, you know, with a range of environmental arguments, really kind of resenting the fact that people who store their cars on the street, you know, get to do that for free. And so it impacts choices. And a number of people who specifically talked about the impacts for children in many ways, um, creating a less climate friendly world for future generations, children being really anxious about climate change and seeing that adults are not willing to do anything about it. And even, you know, people saying when uh, there are fewer cars and uh, restrictions on how cars move around or can park, it makes cycling for my children who I cycle to school with so much easier um, because it's safer. So, th- But this was all about trying to do something about climate and climate change. And yet council voted six to five against it. Why do you think it ultimately failed? Well, number one, there's an election coming up within a year. And if this had gone into place, people would have started getting their notices in January, February or March of next year saying they had to pay their $45 or $5 or $500 or $1,000. And they probably would not have cooled off from that by October 15th. Um, They'd be getting angry and, you know, their friends would come to visit and forget to get an overnight parking permit and then be fined a hundred dollars and you know so everyone would still be angry about it and um the results of it you know maybe positive results of it wouldn't have kicked in or people wouldn't have had a chance to get used to it so that would be one there is an argument that it just wasn't a good policy that it would be better if the province uh, started charging cars differential prices based on how polluting they are or how much people drove or something like that. Is there any possibility then that that the council will try to reshape the policy and come back with something else? I wouldn't be surprised if this came back. You know, just the way early bike lanes were really controversial and hard to get in, and now they've, no one hardly blinks an eye when yet another street, you know, gets a lane removed for a bike lane. The same thing happened with secondary suites. They were hugely controversial and banned at one point. Now no one even thinks twice about it. So this was just one program. How does it fit into what the city is doing more broadly on climate change? Well, broadly, Vancouver, as any city would, looks at two areas when they're trying to reduce carbon emissions. One is buildings, um, you know, making buildings more efficient, either by requiring... Uh, changes in new buildings or offering incentives for renovating old buildings, and then transportation, um, trying to encourage other modes, um, reduce the use of fossil fuel emitting vehicles. Vancouver staffers um, said that 39% of Vancouver's carbon emissions come from vehicles and presumably the rest from buildings. Um, And that generated, I have to say, a lot of questions from people because they were saying, but 
isn't that also people who drive in here from the suburbs? There's no real controls over that. Pollution doesn't stop at the border of Vancouver uh, and so on. Um, but those are the two big areas, vehicles, buildings. Francis, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Laura. The question of parking may seem small in the grand scheme of trying to slash emissions, but according to my next guest, it's one of the few tools cities have in the fight against global warming. Sarah Birch is a Canada Research Chair and an Associate Professor in the Department of Geography and Environmental Management at the University of Waterloo. She studies community and urban transformations in response to climate change. Sarah, hello. Hello, thank you for having me. Now, you used to live in Vancouver. I'm wondering what your reaction was to the failed climate emergency parking program. I did, yes. I spent nearly 10 years in Vancouver, uh, quite embedded in the sustainability and climate change communities. And I know very well that planners and engineers and, and sustainability uh, experts of all stripes have been working really hard um, to advance Vancouver you know, towards its sustainability and climate change goals. So this came as quite a uh, quite a disappointment, you know, that that one of these important tools, you know, using pricing and using fees to try and guide folks towards more sustainable behaviors was was uh, failed to pass in the council. Well, maybe you can explain this a bit more. What, why do municipal fees like this matter as a step for addressing something as big as climate change? Right. Well, you know, we often we, we talk about climate change as this very um, dramatic and it is global phenomenon and nations, you know, states get together and and try to agree on shared goals and targets like under the Paris Agreement. And, you know, we have obviously COP26 coming up in Glasgow soon. So we're hard at work at the international scale discussing the, the best path forward. But ultimately, Whatever Canada agrees to internationally has to come home to roost. It, it, it hits the ground really in, in cities and communities in Canada and around the world. So that means that it's not just the purview or the responsibility of the federal government, but of, uh, you know, very much the responsibility of the provincial and territorial governments and, of course, municipalities as well. But, you know, cities are in the Canadian context sort of famously strapped for cash and they have relatively few mechanisms for uh, for growing their revenue streams, property taxes being one of them, of course. But they need these resources to really do their best work on accelerating that project of, of decarbonization and making progress on sustainability. So this this parking fee and, and others that were proposed, you know, the, the tax on uh, gas-powered vehicles, for instance, are a couple of the tools that they do have at their disposal to help the city make progress. And yet it was rejected. So, so what lessons do we take from that? <laughs> I mean, I take the very basic lesson that people just don't like new fees. Um, you now, when I'm looking at the structure of the fee, it was fairly modest, but it was it was proposed to apply to the whole city rather than just a fraction of the city as it had before, and also overnight guests, uh, which is a new thing in Vancouver, but not new elsewhere. Um, and there were some objections, I understand, to the fact that it might unfairly penalize lower income folks or, you know, those that that uh, resided in basement suites and wouldn't have access to to parking without paying this fee. But in fact, you know, it had been structured so that it was extremely modest for those of lower income, like $5 a year, very small, um, and shouldn't be, you know, 
what an economist would call regressive in that way. But there was significant pushback in, uh, from the public, and that is, it appears, what the, what the council responded to and reacted to. But as you said, there's not a lot of ways for city to raise revenue. And let's just be reminded that this was supposed to be revenues that were going toward efforts to fight climate change. So how can cities raise revenue for the kind of shifts they need to make? You know, initiatives like this might take a couple tries to help people understand where those revenues are going to go and see that we do, there's a chicken and an egg problem here. We need revenues, uh, you know, that could fuel, for lack of a better word, more electric vehicle charging stations so that we can make that transition away from fossil fuel based vehicles and support mass transit and, and active transit. So ensuring that there's that clear link and transparent link between the use of these funds and real steps that make people's lives better and help the city reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. I think that's a really important step. But aside from the revenue generation, municipalities also, of course, have control over how their city is laid out through their planning and their zoning mechanisms. And it seems like a bit of an invisible hand, you know, guiding us along our, our emissions trajectory. But the distance that you and I have to travel from our home to our work and whether or not it's safe and convenient to travel that distance, that's really the purview of the municipality. And so planners have long, long since been advocates for compact, complete communities where we can live close to where we work and find food and recreation and be able to get outside and stay healthy. So that is a really important tool because it locks our cities into hardened infrastructure that stays around for decades and keeps us committed to either a low you know, a low carbon or a really high carbon pathway. Are there other approaches to climate action that you've found to be most successful at, at the city or community level? Canadians have a lot to learn from and also a lot to contribute to in the space of what we're calling nature-based solutions or ecosystem-based approaches. And those are really well suited to the city scale, to the community scale. So this is efforts we can make to protect, to preserve nature and ecosystems, but also to kind of actively manage, use nature to our benefit, for lack of a better phrase. Um, so sometimes that means preserving urban nature rather than, you know, converting our urban forests or, or grasslands or whatever to more developed uh, uses like housing and commercial properties and such. But sometimes it means actively constructing new ecosystems and managing them like wetlands along coastlines that can, you know, protect a city from erosion, from coastal erosion, from um, storms and flooding, but also, you know, all those green and growing things, they sink carbon, so they help us along our our emissions trajectory as well. They can create places for us to play and to walk. So they improve our mental and physical health. And of course, they're, they're great for biodiversity and for the health of nature itself. So nature-based solutions are, 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 you know, they're not new to cities in the sense that cities have always had folks who work on parks and, and recreation and that sort of thing. But actively engaging across planning and engineering and, and parks so that we really cultivate nature in our cities, I think will be a really important next step. How then does local leadership compare to provincial or federal leadership when it comes to climate action? Well, the, the easy and the, and the not so easy answer to that question is that we will inevitably and continuously fail to make speedy enough progress if all levels of government aren't pulling in the same direction on this. And that's a tricky one because jurisdiction over climate change is really spread among 
federal, provincial, and municipal actors. And so, you know, municipalities can make really important first steps to, you know, decarbonize their own facilities, for instance, or switch out streetlights and, and, you know, towards LED bulbs and various things. But if the province comes along and implements, you know, transportation plans that double or triple the size of highways or ports, you know, that would instantaneously, as it has in many cases before, sort of swallowed up those small efforts. So it's really the domain of all three pulling in the same direction. Um, otherwise, we'll be pulling apart. Certainly. And do you see that happening in Canada right now? I do. Yeah, I do. And during my time in Vancouver, uh, there were certainly conversations around the, the size of the port and, and uh, the twinning of various uh, large highways to build the transit infrastructure there, or the transportation infrastructure there. And that, um, I think that created a, a really sort of equal and opposite pressure, um, increasing emissions in the region while individual municipalities were trying to reduce them. Um, so it's it's important that each level of government takes the reins of, you know, the, the governance tools, the policies that it has jurisdiction over. Um, if we collectively as Canadians, acknowledging that, you know, each city is different, each community is different and diverse in many ways, um, if we're pulling in, in the same direction, heading towards the same goal. Now, you talked earlier about the fact that COP26, the International Climate Change Conference, is coming up in Glasgow. And given the limitations of cities, where do they fit into the international and national plans to address climate change? I think in the earliest conversations and in international negotiations, cities had a relatively quiet voice, much like smaller or lower income nations did. Um, but a really good example of coordination that that helped cities or that helped sort of smaller actors gain a larger voice, you know, at the, at the nation state level was, was small island states. So, you know, these are, these are relatively small, often lower income nations around the world who individually didn't have a strong voice on international climate change negotiations, but through the alliance of small island states and other mechanisms, they put their voices together and said, you know, climate change is not something we are causing, um, but we are suffering, um, by far more than these larger and landlocked nations um, because of rising sea levels and storms and such. And cities are doing the same thing through the Global Covenant of Mayors. And in fact, there's a conference called Innovate for Cities run by UN Habitat and the Global Covenant of Mayors talking about exactly these issues, how climate change plays out in cities and what responsibility cities have for enacting and implementing um, the real strategies that are needed for our, for our country, for Canada to meet its meet its commitments on climate change. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer... What's better? Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, there are cities in Canada with populations larger than some provinces and some territories, but they don't have as much power politically. 
With world leaders heading to the 26th Conference of the Parties in Glasgow to tackle the climate crisis soon, Shana Sylvester says it's time to reimagine the relationship between Ottawa and municipal governments. And she joins me now. Hello. Hello. As it stands right now, what kind of relationship does the federal government have with cities? I would say it is a distant relationship. Cities are seen as a creation of provinces, so the federal government doesn't necessarily have a direct relationship with cities, except through things like the Federation of Canadian Municipalities and some of the funding they might give to them. We want a very different kind of relationship, which is much closer and acknowledges the role that cities play in climate action and gives them the capacity to act since they control, I guess, about 60% of the emissions in Canada. How would that change then? What, what does that closer relationship look like? Well, I think it looks like, first of all, recognition of cities in the nationally determined contributions. Now, that's the NDCs, they're called. That's Canada's commitment to climate change. And we're not even recognized. The cities aren't even recognized in the NDC. So that's number one. The second is real recognition for the work that cities are playing in leading on climate change. Now, cities are often the most vulnerable when it comes to climate impacts. I'm based in British Columbia the wildfires that we've had to deal with, rising sea levels in Vancouver, we're the 10th most vulnerable city in the world on rising sea levels. So cities are at the front edge of dealing with this crisis. And yet they don't have the tools, they don't have the capacity to really take action and deal with the issues that, that they have to confront. Can we get into this question of nationally determined contributions or NDCs, as you already brought up, um, which are the climate targets mandated by the Paris Agreement? What do you mean when you say you want cities recognized in that? Well, they're not. In a sense, one might argue, well, it's just a briefing document for government. But it's Canada's commitment to the global arena to say, hey, we're going to come and we are going to make this kind of commitment. Nowhere in there is recognized that cities are part of that commitment. And often what you'll see is Canada and the federal government taking credit for reductions in greenhouse gas emissions anytime they take credit. It's often the city's actions that have led to those reductions. So that part of it is recognizing it. It's also trying to ensure that federal actions do not undermine what cities are doing. So those are some of the things that they're, they want some continuity. They want a, a real conversation with the federal government and really seeing them as important actors and partners in this process. Why wouldn't that happen right now? One of the things we're notorious for in Canada is these jurisdictional battles. Oh, that's the provincial governments. Oh, that's the federal governments. Well, in the case of the cities, provinces will say, well, Cities aren't a level of government. They're a creation of the provinces. So really, the federal government has no right intervening in the realm of provincial politics. So that's that's one of the jurisdictional constitutional fights that we've had in the past. Now, though, when 80% of our population lives in cities, and we know that the closer the form of government is to the people they're governing, the better the democracy. So then there is a real reason for the federal government to really see cities as an important, critical level of government in our country and how it's governed. So tell me, give me some idea of what the relationship would look like that's different from today. Um, would it be having a minister of municipal affairs in, in the federal government dealing directly with cities? How would it change? Well, I think that there's many. Certainly having a minister uh, is important, but you also need to embed cities 
through each of the ministries, and especially those that are working, Natural Resources Canada, Environment and Climate Change, um, Heritage, Social Development, all of those need city lenses in their work. And some of them do, and some of them uh, to a much lesser extent. So we want to see formalized relationships. We want to see, for example, at COP, that cities have a very clear role to play at the table in the negotiations. So our cities included. Um, the other thing, and I think this is the more important piece, is that you know cities are trying to stretch their property taxes into everything, because that's the the taxing authority they have. That's the financial mechanism they have to pay for what's going on. Property taxes are so overstretched. So what we need to see happen is new municipal financing capacity. Part of what can happen is the federal government might make a commitment and it goes to the provinces and it never flows to cities. Um, one of the positive developments we've seen, and this is an example of where I think the federal government recognizes the importance of cities, is we saw the new permanent transit fund. That was something the federal government committed to, provincial governments added to, and that gave regional transportation authorities, often run by mayors, um, the opportunity to really look and plan on transportation infrastructure. So that's important. Now, we are talking about cities, but there are still a lot of people in this country who don't live in cities who are feeling the impacts of climate change. How do you see smaller towns and more remote communities fitting into this? Small communities do not have the capacity to develop this kind of sophisticated climate action plans that bigger municipalities do. But every municipality is part of a broader metropolitan region. And those communities have a close association. So really important that when we think about the actions that are happening at that metro level, that we're thinking about those smaller communities that have a relationship. And I think one of the really interesting things that have happened in Canada is the extent to which Indigenous communities have really looked at themselves as potential sources of power renewable power uh, for uh, the broader urban appetite for power. And so we're starting to see new and innovative programming coming out, controlled by Indigenous communities and developed by Indigenous communities. So that's an example of where if you had a climate lens that you understood that broader urban-rural relationship, you could really create multiple benefits of, of programs and, and funding available to cities and to rural communities. And we know municipalities are on the front lines of a suite of other issues, homelessness, transportation needs. Many are dealing with an opioid crisis. Uh, I'm wondering if there's a danger that cities will see climate responsibilities downloaded to them when they already have so much to cope with. Well, it's so interesting because this is the crux of the matter for so many mayors and councils is they're dealing with this complexity of issues. And they can't be siloed. They really can't because the people who are most vulnerable to climate change are those people living on the streets. You have to look at climate and you have to deal with equity, affordability at the same time that you're dealing with climate. This is a time where we cannot think in the silos we've traditionally thought and we have to look at an integrated planning for cities. Shauna Sylvester, we know you're off to Glasgow for COP26. Um, perhaps we'll talk to you again. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. Now we asked the federal government for a response to some of the concerns that Shauna Sylvester raised, but no one got back to us. While cities would love to have a seat at the negotiating table in Glasgow, David Miller says there are examples of cities that are already solving the climate crisis. And the former mayor of Toronto thinks all urban centres have the opportunity to do the same. He wrote the book Solved, 
how the world's great cities are fixing the climate crisis. And currently, David Miller is the managing director of international diplomacy at C40 Cities. It's a global alliance of city mayors. Hello to you. Hello. Why do you think cities can play a significant role in fighting climate change? Well, I think, first of all, it's because of the urgency of climate change. Um, Science is very clear. We need to roughly have global emissions by 2030 if we're to have any chance whatsoever of avoiding the worst effects of climate change. And that means we need to take things that are working now somewhere and do them everywhere. And the best examples of what's working somewhere to lower greenhouse gas emissions and improve people's lives are globally in cities. Correct me if I'm mistaken, cities are the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions globally? Yes, that's correct. Uh, Studies show that about 70% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions come from cities or from the activities needed to sustain them, like a power plant, even if it's technically just outside the city. Added to that, though, is that over the about the last decade or so, the world has predominantly become urban. And the majority of economic activities are in cities as well. So the people are in cities, our economies in cities, and our greenhouse gas emissions in cities. That means that where there are solutions, there is a huge opportunity to address climate change. Now, as the former mayor of Toronto, you obviously know about the challenges that cities face, but you argue that they still have a lot of power despite their financial or jurisdictional constraints. Tell me how that works. Cities have accepted the science and said that we're going to try to build a 1.5 degree world, which is what science says. We've got to keep overall global heating no no more than 1.5 degrees. And the first thing that cities have, particularly through the office of the mayor, is a tremendous bully pulpit to uh, fight for action on climate change. Second thing they have is a lot of powers that actually are really relevant to climate change. They oversee transportation, um, the quality of buildings, where new buildings go, how often how buildings are built. They oversee waste management. Often they have influence on or control over electricity. And really those are the four areas we're talking about. Um, How we generate our electricity, how we heat and cool our buildings, our transportation systems, and our waste management. And in each of those, there are really significant advances that cities have made globally, whether they have direct regulatory authority or not, uh, in many cases, to lower greenhouse gas emissions, build better cities, um, and really move the world along the right trajectory. What cities do you think are currently leading the way in the different sectors that you mentioned? I can give some really good examples. In buildings, for example, we need to build new buildings much better. And today we can build buildings that are basically zero emission. And Vancouver has a building code that's going to require that by 2030. So they probably have the world's leading building code. um, And they're using it also to create a whole range of local industries that supply the parts for this new kind of way of building buildings. Uh, like mass timber, like different kinds of windows and and so forth. New York City has mandated that existing commercial buildings over a certain size, which are the ones that emit the most greenhouse gases, actually have to cut in half by 2030 the greenhouse gas emissions. And in a city like New York, buildings are the biggest sector of greenhouse gas emissions. And there are examples in other sectors as well. Um, You know, in transportation, Shenzhen, China is incredible. Its taxi fleet and its bus fleet are entirely electric, and they've used the fact of 
public transport going electric to create a whole new industry, the world's leading electric bus manufacturers in Shenzhen, China. You know, in Canada, we're starting to look at electric buses. China's way ahead of us. They're, they're already there. And if you combine that with clean electricity grids, which we have in British Columbia, Ontario and Quebec, uh, in Canada, you have huge advances in lowering greenhouse gas emissions. So there's a, a few examples of really bold action on buildings um, and on transportation, which are uh, very important parts of the solution. Now, I understand that you think that the city you used to uh, lead uh, has done well across the board on reducing emissions. Well, it's not just I think. The, the <laughs> facts show that. You know, the climate plan that we brought in while I was in office, which was called Changes in the Air in 2007, incorporated a whole variety of actions, building new public transports, decarbonizing buildings in the public and private sector, uh, working in neighborhoods and communities with people on smaller projects and, and funding them. Um, all sorts of, of really leading things. And what, I think what Toronto shows is the fact we had a plan and the follow-up plan was done 10 years uh, later uh, under the current mayor. And the research for that plan done by independent consultants showed that the city of Toronto's greenhouse gases emitted by the geographic area, not just by the city operations, are 33% below what they were in 1990. And that comes from the city plan and from the provincial government closing the Lakeview coal-fired plant, which uh, supplied electricity to Toronto, particularly for air conditioning. So the Toronto experience shows that if you address these areas meaningfully, you have a good plan, the mayor takes leadership, you get business and civil society on board, you can make deep and meaningful cuts in carbon emissions. I'm curious to know, uh, when, when you were mayor, was there anything that you wanted to do that, that you couldn't get done for reasons of financial constraints or lack of authority? It is true that it's a challenge for mayors in Canada and many other countries, certainly true in the U.S., to do really large infrastructure projects like build public transport because of the simple fact that most of the tax revenues, about 93% or 94%, depending which province, go to the provincial government and the federal government. Uh, and that makes things very challenging when you want to do a big project. So one of the things we worked on was building alliances locally with, with uh, the regional chairs and mayors outside Toronto, across Ontario and nationally, in order to ensure that the federal and provincial governments helped fund those big kind of infrastructure projects. And that was really critical. Okay, but what would it take for, for the kinds of solutions you've talked to me about to be replicated at the scale and pace that is needed to keep the climate under 1.5 degrees of warming? Well, we very much need over the next very short period, the next two to three to four years, uh, to dramatically start electrifying our uh, transport, for example. And for me, that starts with public transport, with building more public transport, but electrifying what we have, and also electrifying things like fleets. You know, cities regulate taxis and, and electronically dispatched taxis like Lyft. Um, those need to be electrified. So do things like the post office and couriers. And that is an easy step to take because fleets can charge at a centralized place. So that's very important. We need uh, new building standards to meet those of Vancouver, 
in the very next short time. And one thing that would be helpful from other governments, the federal government has a national building code that is essentially advisory, but kind of sets the standard. It needs to be to the standards of Vancouver uh, and beyond. And we, we really need to take uh, meaningful action in this country, and it was discussed in the, the recent federal election, on greening the entire electricity grid so the whole country can reach the standards of British Columbia, Quebec, and Ontario, which are either clean or very close to clean. If we can do those things in Canada and replicate those kinds of things internationally, and there's a whole network now of, of uh, cities working on this globally, well beyond the C40. We're about 100, and we're in the process of trying to mobilize 1,000 or more to the same high standards. If we can do that, the world has a chance, but it's getting very close, and we really need action starting today. But you are heading, I understand it, to COP26 in Glasgow at the end of the month. What's the message that you hope people will hear about how cities can fight climate change? I think what people are going to first hear from Glasgow is worry about national governments not doing what they committed to in Paris six years ago, which is increasing their ambition. And I hope what they hear from cities, because our mayors will be in Glasgow saying it, and I'll be there helping them. I hope what they hear from cities is that there are actions being taken today that if we do more of them, quickly in your city, despite what national governments aren't doing, we can actually get the world on the path it needs to be. There is real action. There's a reason for hope, but we need to work with our city governments and our mayors to help make those actions happen really quickly. David Miller, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. And that does it for us this week. Thanks to our intern, Danielle Piper, associate producers, Serena Renner and Rachel Sanders, producer, Molly Siegel. Matthias Wilson is our engineer. Our senior producer is Manisha Janakaram. I'm Laura Lynch. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.